You're listening to a message from Spindle City Vineyard. Connect with us or find out more at spindlecityvineyard.com. Week one of conflict, we kicked it off. I thought, oh, we're just going to chat about it real quick. It's important. And then we did. And then I got so many emails, so many texts came back to Johanna on the QR code. We had things left on the Connect card where people said, that was really interesting, but I have so much more that I would really like to know about conflict. And so I had specifically talked about why it's important to handle conflict within the context of the church because conflict is the pipeline with which heaven moves. So if we are not in unity with our brothers and sisters in Christ, not just in our local family, but even in the way that we talk about and treat the bigger family, then what we're really doing is cutting off the pipeline of heaven, his access into our lives and the things that Jesus is doing. So it's really important that we pursue unity and reconciliation to the degree that we have the control to do that. Um, Certainly we cannot make other people do that for us. But the second piece to that is a lot of you were like, well, what do I do with conflict outside of the church? What do I do with reoccurring conflict? What do I do with somebody when I've got conflict with a pastor? And, you know, and it's somebody that I feel like has a degree of authority. And, and so what I want to do today is not so much answer all of your individual questions, because those are all really good and valid. But instead, what I want to do is take a step back and actually look at Jesus's paradigm for conflict himself. Because Jesus acts the same whether he has conflict with his family, with his closest friends, or with his enemies. And I think we can learn a lot by looking at the way that he navigates all these different conflicts, all these different challenges, and not so much get like a five-step model or a series of this is how I do it, which I think we'd all like. You know, if, oh, Brittany, can you give me the three steps to handling conflict perfect every time? Well, yeah, I would love to do that if I could with it myself. But Jesus doesn't do that. He has a way of viewing conflict, however, that I think we can embrace that will restore peace to us even when we are experiencing relational tension. So that's where we're going to go this morning. I'm going to pray and then we'll dive into our text. But Father, Son, and Spirit, you love to bring fresh revelation. You love to illuminate your text. You love to share your heart with us. And that's what we really want this morning, Lord, is to get to know you better through your word We want to be able to engage with conflict in a way that is healthy. And I thank God that most of us just want peace. And so we just ask, Lord, that you would help us to understand, embrace, and fully trust you with what you're showing us today. In Jesus' name, amen. So before we get to Jesus' conflict paradigm, I want to remind us of something about conflict that we may or may not tangibly think of. Conflict is a learned skill. Conflict is not something you were like born into in the sense that you just are the way you are. You're either an aggressive person or a passive person or you're going to isolate or you're going to lash out. Like there's some personality dynamics to it. There's a, a little bit. But more than anything, conflict is a learned skill that we adopt usually from the people who raise us. Not necessarily just parents. It could be aunties and uncles, grandparents, the neighborhood we grew up in. We tend to kind of absorb the conflict resolution style of the people that we are around most often. And so what I want you to think about is, how was conflict handled by the adults around you when you were growing up? And you can shout out just a couple things. Screaming. Screaming. Ignore it. What conflict? Silence. Silence. Physical abuse. Violence. Violence. Yep. Whining. 
There you go. We talked through it. Thank you. Ding, ding, ding. The Ubers are like, no aces family. Tim's family is probably, well, no, there were six boys or five boys. They just wrestled, to be honest. Conflict, the way that we watch it, tends to be what we then reproduce as we grow up. Um, unless we make a really cognitive decision not to. So my question would back to you would be, does the way you handle conflict today mirror what you grew up around? And if not, why? Sometimes, yeah. You chose to break the cycle. Yeah, Terry. Or when, we, when I'm the five-year-old self. When it's like, when I want to whine. Yeah. Conflict is a learned skill. And because it is a learned skill, it is something that we have control over. It is something that we can change. Just like any other skill, we can unlearn healthy conflict styles and learn new healthy conflict styles. And why this whole concept matters is because this is what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Most of the time, we don't talk about being a follower of Jesus in the sense of relearning a new way of living. But that's exactly what it means when we decide that we want to follow him. That surrender piece is saying, I am going to unlearn how I lived without you and allow you to teach me who I am, how I think, what I believe, how I interact with the world. We give God control or authority to re-teach us how to exist in our world. It says in Romans 12 too, don't copy the behaviors and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think, by helping us learn to live a new way in the world. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. Being a disciple isn't so much that you read the Bible or you pray or you come to a gathering of church people on a Sunday. Those are tools that can help you in your journey. But being a disciple, a follower, an apprentice of Jesus means that we surrender how we did life before him and we let him tell us how to do our finances, our sexuality, our parenting, our relationships, our conflict, our work environment. We let him tell us what is best. And that's why it's such a costly thing. That's why it's like, are you sure you're ready to count the cost of what it means to follow Jesus because you're giving him control of all of that? But I think the really beautiful thing is that's where freedom is found, especially when it comes to conflict. Because conflict is one of those things that we have a layer of opinions and feelings about based on how we grew up and how our life is now. But what I want you to hear this morning is not a couple of steps on how to get better at conflict, but the invitation from Jesus to embrace the way he sees conflict and how that impacts the way he responds every single time when it comes up. And if you want to read and study this a little bit more, the Gospel of Mark is great because conflict is one of the primary themes in the entire book. So you'll actually see Jesus have conflict over and over and over again. And it's not like he's arguing with people, but there's constant challenges, concerns, people pushing it back or resisting him. So that's a really good book to study, and that's where most of our examples come from today. But let's start with family, because none of us here have family drama. Yeah, no, so you all laughed. You're like, no, my family's perfect. Well, Jesus' Jesus's family was also uh, perfect. Uh, Mark 3, 
31 to 35. I'm going to read it from the ESV, which will be behind me, but you can read it in whatever you have. And his mothers and brothers, his mother and brothers came and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him and they said to him, your mothers and brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. I want to give you like a little bit of context here. Otherwise, that's a really random and useless passage. Uh, Mary and Jesus' siblings have been hearing about everything that's been happening at the start of Jesus' public ministry. He has healed a guy on the Sabbath. He has selected 12 guys to follow him around as his apprentices. He has a crowd that has a mass that is so big that it's hard for him to eat or sleep. And so things are happening in Jesus' life. Their little guy, little G's, you know, the guy they grew up with, their brother, their friend. He's gone off and left the farm. He's no longer doing the carpentry thing. He is wandering through the wilderness teaching and proclaiming and demonstrating and talking about God in a way that nobody has ever done it before. And you would think, oh, your family would be very excited. He's gathering this crowd. Things are happening. Like, hey, maybe we should follow Jesus. Maybe he knows what he's talking about. That's not why they come to see him here in this passage in Mark. They're actually coming to bring him home because they think he's crazy. Ten verses ahead of this in Mark 3.21, it says, when his family heard it, when they heard about all the things happening at the start of his ministry, they went out to seize him for they were saying he's out of his mind. Jesus' family wasn't celebrating who he was. They're like, you are weird and crazy, and you're going to get yourself killed either by the Romans or by the religious institution. Let's bring you home, tuck you away, and hope everybody forgets about this really strange moment in our family's life. Um, And so Jesus understands family drama. He understands conflict. He understands being misunderstood by the people you would hope would love you unconditionally and understand you the most. That was not his experience. That was not the reality of what Jesus had early on. It really didn't happen until after he was risen from the dead when some of his siblings did follow him. But I want you to just look at this passage in Mark and how did Jesus respond to his family? What do we see him do here? He asked, who is my family? Yep. He reframes the question, right. Does he get up and go with them? No, he keeps doing what he's doing. What else? Does he argue? Does he get combative and scream at them? He asks questions. Yeah. Does Jesus hold a grudge against his family? No, we're told in John 19, actually, when he's about to die, he, he, he clearly has been estranged from his family because his siblings aren't there to take care of his mother, who's at the cross. So he asks his disciple, John, will you take care of my mom for me? But later we learn that some of Jesus' brothers who become writers in the New Testament do follow him. They do give their lives to him. They do pursue him and become his disciples. And so we realize that there was a chunk of Jesus' life where in, when he was in ministry, where he didn't talk to his siblings, not because he didn't want to, but because they wanted nothing to do with him. And yet he doesn't let his love go out on that. 
He continues to care for his mom. He continues to be aware of his siblings. So just keep all that in the back of your mind, and let's take a peek at friends. Our text for friends is Matthew 16, 21 to 23. And we've just come off this highlight of Peter recognizing that Jesus is the Messiah. And after that, we go into Jesus beginning to tell his disciples that he's going to go to Jerusalem, he's going to suffer, he's going to be killed at the hands of the people, but that don't worry, on the third day he'll be raised again. And Peter takes him aside and begins to rebuke him. And he says, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And Jesus turns and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of men. The 12 disciples are often treated as though they're Jesus' best friends, right? His closest companions, they travel everywhere together for like three-ish years. He tells them amazing things. They see incredible miracles. Some of them have these mountaintop, literally, experiences where they see Moses and Elijah. It's an incredible time, and yet... Just because they were his closest friends does not mean that there wasn't ever conflict in the camp. In fact, there was conflict all the time because even though they were his 12 chosen friends, the disciples were also expecting Jesus to do what the rest of the Jews thought. They also thought he was going to overthrow Rome. They were waiting for Jesus to take this crowd and basically weaponize them to to go fight the man, to go take down the political empire of Rome and to go and, and set up a new Jewish empire. And because they were the ones Jesus chose, they're figuring we're gonna get the place of honor, which is a big upgrade for fishermen who had basically no life and had, they were at the bottom of the social order in the Jewish world. They're waiting for their heyday where they're going to be like, yeah, everybody's going to be calling me for money. And so when Jesus says things like, I'm going to go die, or I'm going to suffer, or he sleeps through a really bad storm in the middle of the lake, or he is putting them in situations where they're having confrontation with the religious order, that wasn't a little thing for them. They were terrified because they thought, how is this going to pan out well? If you die, none of this works, and we've followed the wrong person. We have to remember that for most of them, they didn't have a revelation that Jesus was Messiah again until after he rose from the dead. And so they go through conflict after conflict after conflict because they're deciding on a regular basis, do we keep after this guy? We're not sure this is going to pan out the way we think it is, we're not sure who's going to get to be seated at the right hand. You know, the order's a little, a little uncertain. So they're looking for power and prestige. Jesus isn't necessarily offering that. And so we see them anxious. We see them fearful. We even see them lash out at him. Like Peter does here when he's saying, you don't talk like that, Jesus. And Jesus is like, excuse me, no. So how does he respond to his friends when there's conflict? Just looking at this example here in Matthew. He speaks truth to them. He rebukes them. He says, that's not, that's not what I was made for. What else does he do? That, yeah, Barb. Yes, Barb, excellent. He clarifies expectations. Ding, ding, ding. I was waiting for that one. That was excellent. 
He clarifies expectations of who he is and what he's here to do. Yep. Yeah. Does he get argumentative, though? Is he going back and forth with Peter multiple times? No, he's not. And does he, does he just throw him away? Does he kick his, his followers, his 12, to the curb when they have these conflicts? No, he keeps his love on. I love that actually Peter, when Peter denies Jesus three times, there is an intentional moment in John 21 where Jesus restores Peter three times. He says, go and feed my sheep. Like he was so concerned about relational connectedness with them, even when they turned their backs on him. Because Jesus didn't look at conflict the way that we look at conflict. He didn't go into it with the same fears or concerns or worries that we went into. He was able to be clear about who he was and let people make a decision about what they thought of him as a result. So let's look at our last example and then we'll pull it all together. In Mark 3, verses 1 to 6, we see a conflict between him and the Pharisees. At this point, when this conflict happens, we're about a year into his public ministry. And we all know that Jesus had many confrontations with the Pharisees about everything from who he chose to eat dinner with, the people he chose to follow him, the behavior of the people that he chose that were following him, that were doing stuff that the Pharisees thought wasn't okay. And so we get to, all of that's already started to happen, and we get to this passage in Mark And it says, again, Jesus entered the synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand. And they, the Pharisees, watched Jesus to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And so he's creating a situation. He has the withered hand guy come up and then he looks at the Pharisees. He knows what they're thinking. And he says, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? to save life or to kill. And they were silent. And he looked at them with anger. Jesus gets angry and his heart is grieved. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. And the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him on how to destroy him. The conflict had built so much that this was the trigger point for the death plot against Jesus. And he has to have some idea, some little bit that he's poking the bear. He sets it up. He has the guy come forward. He brings them up. He's like, this is a showdown. I'm just thinking of all the epic showdown music that went through Jesus's mind. It goes through my mind. The final, no. But anyway, so he's having this moment with them. And then they immediately escalate it to the point of saying, well, now we need to get rid of him. We're going to kill him off. And they fixate on that for like two years. Can you imagine what that did to the Pharisees and the Sadducees? Plotting for like two years to kill someone, the amount of bitterness and hatred and all of that that had to be going on inside. And yet Jesus, even though he has a very strong set of words for them, how does he respond in this? What do we see him do or not do here? Yeah, Barb. No. Yeah, he still loves them. We see that on the cross when he says, Father, forgive my enemies. They know not what they do. What else? He didn't stop being Jesus. Yeah, he still heals the guy. Absolutely. That was great, Kat. One more. Let's grab one more. One more thing you see from Jesus in these passages.
Yeah, absolutely. He challenges their way of thinking by asking, Joe, are you the one that said it? Or Lauren, he asks a question, right? He's not out there debating them, which if, if somebody tells me I did something wrong, you know, you're like, oh yeah? He asks a question. He takes this place of like, hmm, well, what do you think? And I think that what we watch here is that Jesus approaches conflict basically the same way, no matter who he's talking to. doesn't matter if it's his family, his friends, or his enemies. He comes into conflict, and he immediately disconnects it from the person, right? If I have a beef with someone, I have a beef with a person. I'm frustrated about something they did or said or whatever, and I see it as like a, you're my problem. Jesus doesn't seem to approach it that way. He looks at conflict, and he says, there is a set of missed expectations here. So he, he almost removes it. He's like, I'm not at war with this person. The problem that we have is that you want me to be or do or believe something that I am not. And so what he does in those moments is he doesn't argue with them. He doesn't defend himself. He doesn't try and aggress or even run away. He simply he, he clarifies expectations like Barb said. He says, this is who I am. This is what I'm about. This is what I came to do. And then he leaves it in the lap of the person who has having relational tension with them and he allows them to then respond to that truth of who he is, where he doesn't force, manipulate, try to control or take advantage. He says, this is me. This is me. You can think of the greatest showman songs, all of those. This is me. How do you now want to relate in relation to the truth of what I just shared with you? And some people up and walked away, like the rich young ruler. And some of them changed their mind, and they're like, I don't even know what to think, but I'm still here, like his disciples. His family estranged him. They left. And Jesus wasn't so worried about the consequence, and he was able to keep his love on in the midst of all of that because he said, this is who God has created me to be. This is my identity as the Son of God. This is my calling as the Messiah. This is what I have been commissioned to do here on earth. I still love you. You're trying to project something onto me that is not mine to carry. I am not going to pick it up, so I'm going to set a very clear boundary about who I am. But within that boundary is not bitterness, is not a grudge, is not even anger or frustration so much as I am going to tell you who I am and let you then decide. And what a different way to do conflict than what we do right? There's no arguing. There's no debating. There's no manipulation or control. It's Jesus saying, I know very clearly who I am. You're trying to make me someone I'm not. I'm not going to do that, but I can still love you and invite you into relationship with who I actually am if you want that. And whatever you decide, I bless you. That's how Jesus handled conflict. That is wild because there's peace. Jesus says, if they don't want me for who I am, I bless them. But I don't stress about that. I don't chase them down. I don't try to change their mind. Think about how much time we give to other things. How much we let other people control how we feel about ourselves. Spouses, partners, ex-partners, bosses, friends, society. I'm not the right size. I don't make enough. My boss doesn't like me, so I feel bad about myself at work. 
We give so many other people the right to define us. And so when there's tension, it's not just a matter of us feeling odd about expectations. Our value is decimated. And that's why we go into conflict with so much aggression or with total isolation because we don't feel like someone's just having a bad expectation of us. We feel like they don't like us. And so we have to prove ourselves through either fighting back, affirming our worth, cutting them back off in our car, or flipping them off, whatever you do to like affirm that you are important when somebody makes you feel unimportant. And Jesus never did that. And so what we need to do if we want to grow in our ability to relate and handle conflict well is we don't need a five-step model. What we need to do is fully embrace Jesus' way of being, and it is most easily summed up as being God-defined. Jesus didn't let anybody else tell him who he was. Not his parents, not his friends, not society. He only gave that right to God. God got to tell him, I, you are my son in whom I am well pleased before he ever did a darn thing. It was no performance thing that Jesus did for God. He knew he was loved and accepted as his kid from the very beginning, point blank period. That was it. And then out of that, he knew he was the Messiah. He was called to love and be loved by God and give that love away to a world that had no idea how to actually relate to the living God. The only thing they understood was control and religion and sacrifices and trying to earn their way to him. And Jesus came with a totally different way of access, a brand new point. And so he only gives God the right to define him and he refuses to waver on this. And this is so significant because for us, this is what it means to be a disciple. If I want to get better at conflict, there certainly are skills I can learn, mediation and negotiation, but the most pivotal one for me as a follower of Jesus is to let God define me and tell me who I am. I am a daughter. I am loved. I am worthy. I don't have to do anything to earn that love. I just am loved. I don't have to have the greatest job or not have a job. I could be a stay-at-home parent, or I could have a career, or I could try and do some semblance of both. Like, I don't have to live under any of society's definitions because God alone is the one who tells me I matter. And when that is true, nobody can tell me otherwise because he is the only one who has authority and permission. So you could come up to me and be like, Brittany, I don't like you. And I'd be like, well, that stinks. It doesn't feel great. But it doesn't change that I'm loved by God. It doesn't change that I am redeemed and forgiven and accepted. And so are you. So are you. So if we have conflict, if we have beef, if Jen calls me and she's like, you really offended me, that does not cut me in the, to the point of me being like, I'm a terrible, horrible person. I'm going to crawl under a rock. It's I messed up in my relationship with Jen. I love Jen. I'm going to work on this relationship with Jen but I'm still whole in Christ. And so when I'm whole in Christ, if other people think things about me, whether they're true or not, it does not detract from my value, my worth, or my identity. And that allows me to go into, co into conflict with a clear mind because I realize I'm not battling with you. When I go into conflict with someone, whether they're in our church family or it's somebody outside in the world, I realize that I do not need to def 
defend myself and become aggressive and puff up. I can simply be me because I'm always going to be me under the headship of Christ. And so I can just be Brittany and allow myself to navigate through these conflicts. And if they don't like the expectations or, or who I am because of who God says I am, that's not my responsibility. That's not. It's not your responsibility. So what happens with Jesus, he sets himself up as being God-defined, and three basic things come out of that. He sets boundaries, and, and physical boundaries are like a fence, right? Like you like know your property line or you know your walls of your apartment. But in relationships, boundaries are the verbalization of who you are, what you believe, what you think, what you will and will not do. When we talk about boundaries, it's saying, hey, guys, this is my identity in Christ. So no, I'm not willing to go get high with you tonight because this is my boundary of who I am in Christ. But I still love you. Like that doesn't change anything. It just allows you to be very clear about who you are in him. And as that happens, it then gives other people the opportunity to respond back to that truth however they're going to. And people will. You will set boundaries as a follower of Christ and say, this is who I am. This is something I am or am not willing to do. This is something I believe or don't believe. This is something I think or don't think. And as you articulate that with gentleness, you have to then live like Jesus did with the consequences of what somebody says. Your friends may walk away. You might get fired. You may not have a relationship with some parts of your family. That's not necessarily on you, though. We have to give people the same permission to say, all right, you set a boundary. I don't like your boundary. I'm gone. And realize that our job is not then to argue with them and say, oh, you have to come back or manipulate or control, but to respect that and say, Lord, I am complete in you. While that makes me sad, I am not responsible for that person honoring or listening to you or doing any of those things. That's between them and you. And so I have peace and release in conflict when I can say, this is what we do, this is what we don't do, I still love you. And so we see Jesus set his boundaries, we see him live with his consequences of people walking away, betraying, even killing him, because that's what it ultimately came down to, but at the same time, never disconnecting from other people. I can set very clear boundaries around who I am, what I'm called to do, what I will and will not do, what I think and will not think, without turning off my love for the world. Jesus loved his enemies. He blessed people. He had conflict with them regularly, and that did not stop his ability to say, God has, has come to seek and save the lost. He desires that no man would perish, right? We see this. Like, Jesus knew that in his heart. And so even though he may have had conflict with someone, it didn't stop him from saying, God's still after that person's heart also, but my responsibility is not to chase them down and force them to believe that. Jesus handles conflict in such a radically different way than any of us. We are often trying to affirm to the people who hurt us the most that we matter. That's what happens in conflict. I have to battle it out with you to prove that you were wrong and I'm right or that you're being a jerk and I'm, I'm not or whatever, and the reality is Jesus just didn't try to prove himself because he already knew who he was in Christ. And when he didn't have to prove himself, stuff just didn't hit the same way it hits us when we are so insecure in who we are. 
And so, yes, your, your questions were all wonderful about all the elements, and we'll pause for just a minute to ask a couple today. But if you want to get better in conflict, it's a discipleship issue. It's us letting God tell us who we are, what we're about, what we think and believe, and being willing to live in that tension with him and let the people around us decide how they will engage with us, good or bad. But I think there's deep peace in it because even though Jesus walked through conflict all the time, dude seemed pretty grounded to me. He went to the cross, silent, committed to what the Lord had called him to do. And that may not be the same thing for any of us, but I think it'll give us a significant amount of peace when we enter into conflict and tension, being fully aware that you are a son or daughter of God and all the things that comes with that. And the rest of that's another conversation for another day because we're not going to stay here all day. But I want to do a quick exercise in this concept to just give you like a physical how to hold on to it. So imagine right now the person that you have the biggest disagreement with. <laughs> just let their face come to your brain. You're like, I don't know, maybe it's me. You're like, I'm just staring at her. It's fine. So make a fist with your left hand right now. Imagine that what you're holding in your hand are your deeply held convictions, the things that matter the most to me, your identity in Christ. Like this is stuff you will not budge on. And that person may want you to budge on all of it. They may totally disagree with you about everything that you are. Hold on to them tightly and feel your commitment to those deeply held convictions. Like this is stuff you're, you know, you're going to be tweeting about or whatever. Now, without letting go, just imagine Jesus in this space. Without letting go, take your right hand and imagine extending it to that person that you're having that deepest di disagreement with. This is what it looks like to be God-defined and connected in conflict. This is what it looks like to do conflict the way Jesus did, where you're holding on to the things that you are not going to get rid of about who you are but at the same time, you still have a hand free to extend it to that person and say, I still bless you and love you. It may be a handshake goodbye. It may be a handshake that leads to lunch at a table and coffee. I don't know. But this is what it looks like. This is emotional maturity the way Jesus did it to be able to say, I can hold on to everything and still hold on to you. And so as you're thinking about conflict and you're going into conflict, Stop trying to do this, which is usually what we do, rock'em, sock'em, robot people, and instead realize, I can hold on to who God told me I am and still love you because, God, you define me, and you're the only one. So, like, that's that. That's conflict part two. There probably could be 60 more pieces to that, but that's where we're stopping today. One to two questions, two to three questions, roughly, and then we'll do ministry time. Unless you're like, we have no more questions, Brittany. You said God defined, now we can't say anything. Yeah, if you bring the whole verse, Joe, we can, yeah, look it up. You're going to have conflict with people, and that doesn't mean that you don't, in the church, we talked about this, right? The goal in the church is always to seek reconciliation to the degree that we have the ability to do that, which is we simply set our boundaries and say, you hurt me, or somebody comes up and says, you hurt me, and then you have to make it right. But we don't 
we can't control people. So there's a degree of being able, when Jesus did conflict, there was a release of responsibility. He knew what he was responsible for and what other people were responsible for, and he did not mix the two and try to take them on. Other questions about conflict? Some of you had very specific things you sent in. No? What if it's the pastor? Chen's like, secretly, we have more beef. I think that's really hard. Think about it if, in the sense of pastor, your boss, somebody in authority over you. Like Those are awkward times to bring up conflict. But I think in the same way, it depends on maybe Jen, there's, there's certainly variables to that. What, what is the conflict about? Are they mistreating you? Are they asking you to do something that you never signed up to do? Are they wrong morally, ethically? You know, You have to suss all that out and know why you're going to them. But then you, you do, you set that clear boundary of like, this isn't appropriate behavior, or I'm not able to do this, this is my job, or we're having conflict and I don't feel like we're able to engage appropriately. And you know, you can try that one-on-one -on -one if it works, if you feel like that's a safe environment. And if that's not a safe environment, you certainly bring somebody trusted who's not really picking sides, but is somebody who's going to be a really good third party who will witness that and make sure that things do not get out of hand. And then there's all the variables to how they respond. If you're being bullied, hmm, yeah. I think Jesus removes himself a lot, Terry, from situations, right? Where he sets clear boundaries around himself. But Jesus, though he did let himself be killed, that was because that was what God had planned. I think if we have kids or even as adults, we are being bullied, we set a clear boundary of, I'm not willing to let you speak to me like that. I am removing myself because this is not an appropriate or healthy relationship for me to be in. And if you cannot, if they will not respect your boundaries, there's that escalation of support st structures. So like in a school setting, I would say a teacher, trusted advisor, somebody who's not gonna like make it worse, but also is going to support you in the, in the reality is in the world we live in today, that unfortunately is basically like the police, which nobody really wants to escalate, but it's, that's the only support structures we sometimes have as adults um, who will help us to like, set up our boundaries. So, which hopefully doesn't get to that point because that's not great. Okay, conflict part two. You can send in all your questions and we'll do part three later another month or whatever. We'll see what the Holy Spirit brings up then. If you want to stand up, shake out your conflict. We'll move into ministry time and we'll do just about five minutes. I want to respect the fact that we're nearing our end. Let's just see what the Holy Spirit wants to do. I don't have a clue today. We're just going to let him tell us. Huh? Yes, it did. Um, so Holy Spirit, we just invite you. You're already present, Lord. Help us become aware of your presence right now.
more, Holy Spirit. We just bless what you're doing and we ask for an increase right now. <clears throat> yeah, more, Lord. Father, I think um, there's folks here that are really tired because their whole life they've been fighting the people around them to just have a place, to feel worthy, to feel seen and noticed. And people have done and said things that make you feel the opposite. They've treated you really poorly. And so you only know how to fight so that you can affirm, like, I know I matter, even if people tell me I don't. So I, I just know how to fight. For that place and I feel like what the Holy Spirit wants to do this morning is just pour out his love when you are loved by the Lord it changes it melts it gives us strength that we didn't know that we had and so Holy Spirit we ask for a wave right now of your love tangible feeling uncomfortable like it just fidgety or having a hard time focusing I just bless you to not resist the Lord when we've been independent for so long it can feel so uncomfortable to be loved by somebody who is love God, you are gentle and gracious, slow to anger and compassionate. Would you pour out your gentle love this morning, especially on those who feel the driest, the most tired, the least lovable? We bless what you're doing. We bless what you're doing. If you're receiving from him, just let it let it keep coming. But I think there's somebody here who has used violence as a tool probably for survival but you continue to use it and I feel I actually feel like God's saying lay your weapons down I don't know if it's just um, I assume figuratively but maybe it's literal uh, but I just feel like if you have that fighting spirit I feel like God's inviting you this morning to non-violence to peace and so if that too you can just in your own seat don't even have to indicate it to us, but just say, Lord, I don't want to fight people anymore. Give that anger, that rage, that fear over to him right now. Thank you, Lord. 
more, Holy Spirit, more. There's just like a crisscross through the center of the Spirit moving, and we bless what you're doing, Lord.